Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice. It is so easy to get started with Linode. Servers start at just five bucks a month. We host Changelog on Linode cloud servers and we love it. We get great 24 seven support. Zeus like powers with native SSDs, a super fast 40 gigabit per second network and incredibly fast CPUs for processing. And we trust Linode because they keep it fast. They keep it simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Change Logo podcast featuring the hackers, leaders, and innovators of software development. I'm Adam Stakoviak, editor in chief here at Change Log. On today's show, we're joined by Sasha Grief to discuss the state of CSS survey and the results. CSS is evolving faster than ever, and coming off the heels of their annual state of JavaScript survey, they decided to take on the world of styles and selectors to help identify the latest patterns and trends in CSS. We talked about the history and the motivations of the survey, the methodologies of their data collection, the tooling involved to build and run this survey. And of course, we dig deep into the survey results and talk through the insights we found most interesting. So Sasha, we're here to talk about the state of CSS survey results. But before this survey was the state of JS survey, which has been going on for a little while now. And it seems like you're enjoying that or at least getting benefits from that in the community. So you're expanding to CSS now. Why don't you help us understand the history of these surveys, why you started doing them and uh, what's going on? Sure. So I think like a lot of people, like especially a couple years back, I was a bit confused about uh, the JavaScript world. There was uh, a lot of things going on, React, Angular, uh, Redux, uh, Relay, Flux, whatever. Um, and so the, the main reason why I started these surveys was to help uh, myself figure things out and uh, especially know what to focus on next, what to learn next. Because, I, I mean, when you read Hacker News or, or whatever, it seems like there's a new thing coming out every week and everybody's learning all these things all the time. But the reality is it takes, you know, weeks, months to, to or more to get good at something like React or Angular. So you have to be careful about what you pick and what you invest your time on. And so that was really the the main reason, like just figure it out. And I, I decided to do it as a survey because I, I thought if I'm in that position and you know I, I kind of spend a lot of time online, uh, I try to keep up. So if I'm confused, I bet there's other people who don't have as much free time as I do, uh, who are probably even more confused and they could use the help and they could use the, the data, especially. So that was kind of the, the reason for the first state of JavaScript survey, like back in 2016. And so uh, last year, 2018, we had the third edition. And now this year, 2019, uh, we're gonna have another state of JS, but before that, we are having the first ever state of CSS. So had you ever done surveys before? Because as you've learned throughout this process, I'm sure if you haven't done them before, is that it's very hard to, to do a survey well. And I'm sure it's been a learning process. But before that, have you, have you done surveys in your work or in your, your experience previously? Not really, at least not on that scale. Like um, I've definitely done some like 
really small scale data collection, you know, asking people, let's, I don't know, book readers or whatever for feedback. So those are kind of like surveys in a way, but nothing where I would really analyze the data and publish the results and so on. So that was actually uh, brand new for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's happened is that there's been some criticism and even some criticism from us here uh, on the Changelog Network on JS Party about the methodology of the collection, really around the transparency of the data and trying to get representative demographics. So you can go back and listen to JS Party episode 54 where we discuss these things. And Sasha, you heard that show and then you wrote up a, a nice post on Free Code Camp all about who took the State of JS 2018 survey. Maybe over review that scenario from your perspective and I, I hope that our criticism was constructive and not uh, we weren't trying to take shots at you, just trying to talk about the results. One of the reasons why I think uh, we thought it was worth talking about is because of the way that you do these surveys is so um, high quality in, in my eyes at least that they seem like because it's the state of JS and because you, you put up such a polished result that it comes with authority. And so there's, you know, because of that comes some responsibility. And so that's why we thought it was worth talking about is that this is not a survey that is put on by, you know, professional survey takers. It's put on by some community members. Yeah. So just tell us about that post you wrote. We'll put it in the show notes. But from your side, how is the, that kind of criticism happened? Yeah. So, so I think the, the criticism in that podcast, a lot of it was very valid, um, so for me, there's like two kinds of criticism. There's one about the lack of transparency, uh, not knowing where the data comes from or methodology, and that's 100% valid. Uh, and, and I'm going to come back to it. But then the criticism that's always kind of getting on my nerve is when people look at the results and then it doesn't match their preconceived notion of what it should be. And they're like, oh, wow, React did really well in the survey, so the survey must be biased towards React or you know, maybe oh, these guys used React to build a site, so uh, how could they not be biased? And that's kind of annoying because uh, we really do our best not to introduce any bias. And beyond that, it's you know it's not something that we can necessarily control. Like if somebody is like, well, the only reason why, let's say, Amber did poorly is because uh, Amber devs didn't take the survey. Well, it's not like we were turning away Ember developers, right? We always do our best to get as many people as we can to take the surveys. And uh, if it doesn't reach such or such community, we're really limited in what we can do because we don't have a, a budget or we don't have advertising or anything like that. So it's just us uh, begging people to take the survey. Let's talk about that then. Let's dive into sort of the processes that you use to attract the community that it's supposed to represent how do you what are some of the ways that you do that do you do blog posts podcast appearances obviously you're doing one here today what are some of the ways yeah so the, the launch for a survey um basically we rely on the community we we get in touch with people who are influential uh like uh, wes boss um or uh, peter cooper who runs the the js weekly newsletter um chris coyer from css tricks so people like that who have a, a wide audience, which obviously also introduces uh, their its own set of bias. Because to take a practical example, Wes Boss, he's done courses on React, uh, among other things. So maybe his audience is a bit biased towards React. So and, and so that's a fair criticism in a way, but it's just uh, about the fact that well, what else can we do? Yeah, it's a hard problem 
to solve uh, in a in a really um, decisive way. Like we can only do our best, basically. But yeah, it's a lot of uh, writing uh, posts. One thing I really try to do is like reuse the, the byproducts of running the surveys. So, for example, uh, last year I wrote a post about uh, how to evaluate a JavaScript library and kind of tying it in with the questions that we ask in the survey to try and uh, explain, well, both give people uh, this like system for evaluating a, a library and also explain um, the questions that are in the survey. Do you ever reach out directly to framework authors and library authors, let them know, for example, like if the, if the Angular community feels underrepresented in the demographics who took the survey and therefore believe that Angular is underrepresented because of that, it seems like it would be beneficial for them from the leadership perspective for, to know, hey, here comes the state of JS for this year. You know, we, we know all the frameworks will be there. Angular is going to be there. We want to get this out to our community so that Angular is well represented in the demographics. Is that something you've done to talk to library authors, framework uh, teams? Because they have vested interest in, in helping spread the word. Uh, yeah, that's not something I've done. Um, first of all, it's not always that easy to know who is like in charge of Angular or, you know, or React, like there's people who are, are uh, very visible online, but they might not be the actual people who like know about these things. Maybe that would introduce some bias because if uh, for whatever reason, you know, if, if I contact Angular, uh, React, Ember, but not, uh, you know, Vue, let's say, that's already a huge bias against Vue. You'd have to do all of them. You'd have to look at your actual survey and have, okay, here's my six frameworks that are on questions. I'm sure there's maybe another question. And so we're going to we're gonna contact all six and and go from there. But uh, not saying that that would necessarily solve the problem, but it, it seems like if there's underrepresentation in certain niches, then it could be up to the advocates or the devrels in that niche to just at least get the word out that the survey exists. Now, if they start gaming it and stuff, you got a whole nother problem, right? Yeah, and also when you say underrepresentation, it's like it's tricky because compared to what? It's not like there's a, a population count for Angular developers so the best we can do is compare our results to like the Stack Overflow developer survey results. And uh, so far, they've been pretty similar. Like uh, there aren't like major differences. So that kind of tells us that we're in the right direction. But yeah, it's definitely a, a tricky problem. So to circle back to like the, the transparency and, and methodology thing, uh, what I started doing last year in big part, thanks to your uh, your podcast and your the the kind of the feedback that I got there is uh, showing the sources. So how did people find the survey? Which websites? Uh, was it Twitter? Was it CSS Tricks or JS Weekly or whatever? Hacker News. And that, that's a mix of what people self-report. And also we, we kind of use different tags. So we if it's on CSS Tricks, the links will be, you know, state of CSS slash uh, question mark source, whatever. Uh, so we, we really try, at least this time, we really tried to keep the the different sources distinct and make it easier to track them. Yeah, that's excellent. And you have the you have the data downloadable now in this in this new one right there at the top in a demographics section. I think specifically in the state of CSS 29, which uh, we are looking at kind of a pre-release, which is maybe 98% done by the time the show goes out, audience, you can go out to the website and check out the full results. But right there you have the the breakdown of sources 
which is really awesome, as well as everything is downloadable. That was another one of our uh, the criticisms I think Kevin said on JS Party was if we could have the data, maybe we could you know look at it and the community could could do those kind of things. And so I mean, it shows that you this is a good faith effort, absolutely, and we appreciate that that you are adjusting and adapting and saying you know well let's let's make this better. And so um, that means the surveys will get better every year, and that's that's ultimately what we're what we're all after because they're so valuable. Yeah, and I think you know when when I work on a project like that, I'm always doing my best. So, but the thing is, my best doesn't you know reach the same level in different areas. So, like my background is more of a, as a designer. So, doing my best on that level, hopefully, it gives something that looks pretty professional and and that has a lot of uh, credibility on that front. But then my best on a you know more like survey methodology uh, front might not be as good because I'm still learning. So the end result is like kind of limited by what I and Raphael, my, my partner, can do. So um, hopefully we'll improve like everywhere as we go. But uh, definitely the first couple editions uh, are kind of have that mark of our uh, strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and as we go, hopefully it gets more uh, rounded out. What do you think the magic number is or a range of numbers that can represent a community's opinion. So if you are speaking of JavaScript, very large, CSS, I would potentially say even more larger because so many people touch it. I could be wrong. But, you know, what are the numbers of people giving their feedback, giving their their survey results, so to speak, to curb this bias or even create this awareness of what is and is not popular in a community? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it's really tough to answer. So for me, uh, you know, I thought about that a lot after, especially last year, where uh, a lot of the criticisms, because uh, the survey got bigger, so I got more criticism, which is fair. And so my philosophy is kind of, it's not really the number or whatever that matters. It's just people knowing what the data says and where it's from. So, you know, it, it, if you survey, you know, 20 people, that's fine, as long as you say that it was 20 people. And if it's 200,000, that's fine, too. And if it's uh, you know twenty thousand, but they come from such and such sources, which might introduce its own bias, it's fine as long as you disclose that. So that's really what we're trying to do. Uh, and, and for example, for state of CSS, since a lot of our respondents are um, coming from having done the state of JS survey, I'm sure there will be a, a bias towards things like you know CSS and JS or whatever. But I think that's fine because people can know that and, and see that and also uh, then use the data, you know, critically. Like, for example, maybe the, the proportion of respondents who use CSS and JS uh, libraries it will be higher, but their opinion of these libraries will still be representative of the, the larger uh, community. So it's really like, you know, I, I think in our daily life when we see numbers like in surveys, uh, we're kind of not thought um, how to analyze them. It's kind of, oh, this candidate has, like Trump has 30% chance of winning or something. So you're like, well, okay, that's tiny. It's never going to happen. And then he wins and you're like, well, the, the polls were wrong because the polls said 30% and he still won. But obviously that's not how polls work. And um, I think there's kind of a, an effort on the part of the people reading the data as well um, to kind of see the, the raw data and then make their own opinion rather than just 
you want something that's like kind of pre-baked for them. I want, I 100% agree with you. Obviously we want more diversity. We want more numbers, like the more people, the more representative it is, you know, a sample of 20 people even statistically is not enough to come up with any sort of conclusions. But the, at the end of the day, like you said, Sasha, if the data is out there and you, and you provide the context, like this source, you know, right now I'm looking at the results and 23% of the people who participated in the state of CSS heard about it because of the email. I assume that's the state of JS mailing list. Is that, is that the email it's referring to? Yeah. So they're coming from that place and it's up to us as the consumer of this, of these results to come up to our own conclusions based on not just, Hey, look at this one. It's number one. And then walk away. That's a very shallow way to live life, right? That's not how it works. You gotta, you have to do your own analysis. And as long as the data is there and there's a good faith effort and it's, it's getting better over time versus getting worse, or there's no effort put in to get more respondents or more, um, types of respondents, then that's a problem, but it's up to the reader to interpret the results. And you can't just take the top five and say, here's the winner because I, I read it on a website that somebody did. On that note too, I would say if, if you're that person out there listening right now who has, you know, has had some concerns, I suppose, about this or other surveys, and given the fact that 22.9% of the people who found out about this survey learned about it through email, hey, maybe go sign up for the email. That way um, you can contribute to, you know, its information rather than being upset by the results. I would also say that, Sasha, it seems to me that surveys, while may indicate positions of truth, are not exactly full truth. They're sort of indicators. And I would even rewind back to your original reason for doing it, which was to inform your own personal desires for the JavaScript community and, you know, essentially trudging your path. So it was a source of information, not a source of like, this is the way it is. It was more like, here's some data to make the next career decision you might make. For example, your your uh, Meter.js book, for example, or Folio, things you're doing there, or whatever, you need more information, more data. And I think that this is a way to get people more data to make accurate and more visible choices rather than, you know, not having data, data driven. Yeah, it's one more data point, which you can, you know, take into account or not, it's it's up to you. Now, I think it's fair to kind of say that because I call it the state of JavaScript, I kind of staking a claim in a way. This is what it's like, and I have the ultimate truth. But I think it's, you know, you have to take it more as a marketing thing in a way. Like, I thought it was a good name. I thought it really communicated what I was trying to do. I'm not trying to say, like, I have the, the only truth about JavaScript or CSS or whatever. So I, you have to take it with a grain of salt. There's also, and I, I completely agree with that, it is a great name, and I, w I said this on JS Party, I'll say it again because I'm back now on the 2018 State of JS. The website's just really well done. Oh my uh, gosh, yeah. it's, it's so, so good. It's so Thanks. good. But And then you have the awards at the end. I think maybe this is the part that you know maybe tips people over, is like, okay, here's the, the highest satisfaction library. Here's the most mentioned thing. And of course, people want to see their favorite library or framework, you know, get that award and 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 so it's going to bring out the feels. I think it did. So some of that is, you know, why is why is it Jest and it's not GraphQL or whatever the the, the the those feels happen to be. So I love the idea of the awards, but I wonder if if that particular section of the results, which I see you're doing again, 
here for CSS in 2019, maybe drove some of the any sort of the the non-constructive criticism um, that was out there. Yeah, maybe, but you know, I, I think so. I'm a big Meteor JS user, um, and Meteor gets really bad ratings. <laughs> Yeah. Every year. How does that make you feel? <laughs> makes me feel bad, but you know, it's like if I can take it, uh, others can probably as well. There you go. I like that. This episode is brought to you by GoCD. With native integrations for Kubernetes and a Helm chart to quickly get started, GoCD is an easy choice for cloud native teams. With GoCD running on Kubernetes, you define your build workflow and let GoCD provision and scale build infrastructure on the fly for you. GoCD installs as a Kubernetes native application, which allows for ease of operations, easily upgrade and maintain GoCD using Helm, scale your build infrastructure elastically with a new elastic agent that uses Kubernetes conventions to dynamically scale GoCD agents. GoCD also has first-class integration with Docker registries, easily compose, track, and visualize deployments on Kubernetes. Learn more and get started at gocd.org slash Kubernetes. Again, gocd.org slash Kubernetes. So let's talk about how you go about uh, doing these these results because it's a lot of work and we want to even hear about the process of getting it into this awesome form. Uh, first of all, we should probably mention that you aren't the only person doing this. You want to flesh out the team for us so we understand who's behind this these surveys and the website and the charts and everything. Sure. Yeah. So I, I mean, I I talk about I, I I did this, I did that a lot. But that's because you know I take a lot of the decisions, but actually behind the scenes, um, I'm held by uh, Raphael Benit, who is, uh, uh, funnily enough, so I live in Japan, and I'm French, and I'm a JavaScript developer, and he also lives in Japan. He's also French, also a JavaScript developer, and he. Um, so we met here at a tech event, and um, we, you know, really hit it off because we were both interested in the same things, and. He has a charting library for React called uh, Nivo, N-I-V-O-J-S, which is really, really cool. It powers all of our charts, and it's really amazing. Like It has so many chart types. It's really flexible. You can uh, customize it in tons of different ways. So he was kind of the perfect person for uh, to help me with that project, uh, especially because he's also um, pretty good with uh, data processing. So you asked me about like the, the data processing stack and we collect the data with a type form. So it's like a hosted form service, uh, which is pretty good. Like it kind of struggles with our surveys because they are so long and they have so many questions. You know, one day uh, we would really like to build our own survey front end so that we can really tailor it and, and work on the performance aspect and, and so on. But for now, we're happy with type form. So once we have the, all that data in, uh, Raphael set up like a Elasticsearch process, a database thing, which downloads all the data from Typeform, puts it in Elasticsearch, queries it, uh, aggregates it, normalizes it, 
and that generates uh, YAML files, just static YAML files, which go into Gatsby. And we use Gatsby's uh, uh, GraphQL querying to uh, use those YAML files as source and inject that data into the React site that serves as the, the front end. So we, we found your YAML files uh, yesterday as we were poking around the open source code. And, <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, because because Adam's like, how do they even build out a site like this in Gatsby? And I was just like, well, I'm sure there's just some data source somewhere. Maybe it's pulling from a backend that just serves up JSON. Or oh nope, here's the YAML files right down in there. And we started discussing just briefly, Adam, you and I, just like why YAML in the circumstance that because that's what Typeform gives you. Is that a format that you would prefer? I mentioned, well, at least you could put comments in YAML, uh, even though it is auto generated. Uh, whereas a JSON as a as a data file, you know, you can't put comments in it. Uh, oh, curious yeah, no, if I, that was like a choice of yours, if that was just like Typeform spits it out, or the data processing stuff spits that out. No, I I much prefer YAML because it's less verbose. There's no uh, curly brackets everywhere. Uh, there's no commas to deal with. No, yeah, JSON for that kind of use. If it's like a in a .js file, it's kind of permissive. That's fine. But like .json files are always horrible to deal with in my opinion, because the, the syntax is so strict. So yeah, YAML is really convenient. It's easy to understand. It's easy to edit even by hand. Yeah, YAML is really cool. So is the, is Gatsby, is this your first run at Gatsby or did you have you used it for other websites? Curious your your thoughts on Gatsby real quick before we dive into the, the actual results here. Yeah, no, I've used Gatsby for a while. Um, I think before version one. Yeah, definitely when it was in beta. So. I don't remember what the first site I built with was. Maybe the first year of state.js, but since then I've kind of used it for everything I do. So as an aside, I also have my own JavaScript framework called Vulkan.js, which is uh, based on Meteor. So it's not a static site generator. It's like a real, like Rails-like framework. But for everything else I do that's more of a static site, I use Gatsby. So I've used it for the three state of JS, state of CSS. I use it for my own uh, like little homepage. Uh, I use it for a, a blog that I'm doing for my work. I use it, yeah, for a bunch of stuff. I think state of JS and CSS, though that's the most complex like Gatsby uh, stack that I'm dealing with currently. There's definitely a, a lot going on. Uh, but Gatsby is really cool. Like I really like it. It's definitely not super easy like it's it's more of a power user thing i think like um well i hope the gatsby guys don't get mad at me for <laughs> saying that because <laughs> uh, they're really cool guys but um i think it really shines let's say when you have to aggregate lots of data sources and you want that really that that flexibility basically yeah that other static side generators don't really provide yeah, it's funny when we had Jason Lengstorf on the show to talk about Gatsby, we were assuming because it pitches itself as like the fastest static site uh, generate, and they don't like the term static site generate, but we'll just use it for now. And we thought that meant like it was like the fastest build times, and I was like, well, that's kind of crazy because uh, what's the Go one? I just Hugo. Hugo builds like super fast, and so I thought it was like developer friendly in that regard, like it's going to build fast, going to be super easy to use. And he's like, no, no, no. The point is like the the results, the output, the actual website at the end is optimized to be the most performant, the fastest, like all the best practices on the results. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the it's the simplest, fastest, most developer friendly to use because um, they're working on all that. 
but it's flexible and the results are awesome. And so that's why they, you know it's worth it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it does a lot for you behind the scenes. There's a ton of plugins. Uh, it's really, really powerful. And what's cool is once you do master it, like you can, you know, do simple things with it. Like my own homepage actually uh, removed the the JavaScript from it. So it's all statically rendered and there's no like, uh, there's no JavaScript on the client basically. Mm. So you can even do that. So of course you don't get the performance aspect, but if you just want something that's 100% static, mm-hmm. uh, I guess we can do that too. Is it still loading? I'm just I get curious about analytics. Are you doing like server side analytics, or do you still load a JavaScript file for like tracking? Um, I don't know. I think I might not have JavaScript because it's just you know my my own homepage. So while we're getting meta, before we get into the results, one last aspect that we find interesting, and I think you'll find it interesting uh, as well. Uh, listeners, is that there's actually a new thing this year, which is brand new, the the T-shirt. So we got to talk about the T-shirt before we get into the results. Uh, a CSS T-shirt. Support the survey and look good in the process. This is a very cool CSS logo shirt. Sasha, I assume that's you on the website there uh, wearing it. Tell us about this idea, what you're doing with it, and what you hope people do, which I assume is buy it, but I'll let you speak to that. Yeah, well, so I'm a big believer that any project needs to be like sustainable. Um, so even though like Setup.js is not something I'm necessarily doing to get rich or anything like that, I do want to always experiment on ways to monetize it as long as it's not like intrusive or, you know, I'm never going to put ads that track you or, or for unrelated products or anything like that. But if we can find partners or sponsors that also provide value by giving you access to resources or whatever, uh, that's something we've done in the past. And now this year, I had this idea to do a t-shirt. So actually, I did a t-shirt for State of JS last year as well, but uh, I, I did it in partnership with uh, the JS conference in Paris where I presented the results. So it was only available to people there. But the the attendees really liked the shirt, so this year I decided to try again and this time make it available to everybody and uh, see, you know, if it turns out that that's a viable way to monetize the survey, that would be awesome because it means we can remain completely independent. Uh, A shirt is something that you you can keep selling as time goes by. It's not a one-time thing. And then uh, also what I wanted to do is make a shirt that actually teaches people something so um you know listeners can go check it out on the survey page but it basically has our survey logo which itself is built with css and then the shirt has annotations that tell you the css properties that were used to build the logo that's on the shirt what's cool about this is it's not really self-branded even it's it's on the line of like you said more educational and well-designed rather than simply saying hey state of css survey and it's more just like css agnostic in in general you know <laughs> or see it more css focus focus on the right. css that's what i mean to but say. not like on the sur- survey agnostic right? right the survey is not part of the shirt it's not a survey shirt because nobody wants to wear a shirt survey shirt so you are smart enough to make it about css right which is timeless interesting and very well designed as you would expect from the stuff you're putting out sasha the, the websites are always very well designed and this is this is no exception so the shirt is very very Easy on the eyes. So yeah, definitely let us know uh, how that the results go with the t-shirt listeners out there. If you if you like these surveys, if you get benefit out of them, and if you want a cool tee, uh, 
definitely support this effort by getting out there and and buying the state of CSS. So if this goes well, Sasha, this will be something that there'll be a JS t-shirt down the road. Maybe there'll be like specific things. If you do different surveys, you might do a, a t-shirt per survey. Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah, that would be awesome. So I don't know yet if, if it would be the same t-shirt every year or because, you know, coming up with a new design every year is kind of still a lot of work, even if it's once per year. Usually we're already short on time and we're already trying to wrap everything up. So I don't know, but we'll see. Definitely one per survey would, would be cool. So, so I'm curious, you know, you, you seem to have this touchy-feely way about approaching the monetization of it. So you're, you're concerned or you, you, you want it to be sustainable, but you want to approach the monetization of it in a way that respects, obviously, the community. You know, what's your outlook on this front? Like, you know, I don't know how much you can share about the financials behind the things, but just curious how how sustainable it has been, how much money you've had to put in your personal, from your personal pocket, and has it simply been a labor of love or has it been a labor labor of love and some profit? So we did make some profit, like, I don't remember the, the exact figures, but at least a couple thousand dollars uh, last year, maybe, you know, four or five thousand, and that comes mostly from uh, sponsorships and then uh, affiliate links. Um, so, you know, we, we have affiliate links to courses like uh, West Boss's courses or a couple others. And well, it's not even a question of like ethics or anything. It's just I think most advertising doesn't work online. And the only reason it can work is when it provides actual value to the, you know, customer or, or user or reader or whatever. If it's just unrelated or I think so, I think what happened is the more the worse the ad, the more you have to add tracking and you know, unwanted things to kind of make up for the ad not adding value. And so on the other hand, if, if the ad itself can have value, you don't need all this extra tracking stuff or unethical stuff. I think you probably want to be more in the line of partnerships where there's a mutual benefit. The folks that were that would be or are willing to partner with you on the state of JS survey or the state of CSS survey, you know, you want people who care about that community and want to help it thrive and care that this survey exists. And therefore, it makes sense for them to be a partner with you in, in sustaining it, for one. But then they also get the representation of caring about the community. And that's part of what your design would illustrate is how do they care? You know, How are they relevant? Why should you care about X brand or whatever? Yeah, and I think you know you, you get a very small amount of like goodwill from the community, uh, and, and you don't want to waste it on, you know, making a bad impression with you know, just random Google ads or like shady business practices, um, especially if if you're in it for for the long run, uh, which uh, we are. So for us, really, you know, even if we just don't monetize at all and we skip a year, um, it, it's fine because. Our main goal is just getting the, the survey out there and getting good data and kind of establishing it as a brand. Um, you know, maybe that's also kind of the, the designer in me speaking. Like, I really think the brand is the most important uh, and the profits are kind of secondary uh, after that. Mm -hmm. So one other idea that you could do, and maybe this is just generating more work, so it's it's not great, but what I think of is now that you have state of CSS and JS and you have this process down, like you said, you're, you may develop your own front end every year. You get a little bit better at it is 
you could go to specific organizations that have vested interests in specific communities that don't have surveys. So you could have State of Rust 2020, and it's not that uh, there's advertisers, it's that maybe Mozilla funds your entity to run the survey for them. And so it's brought to you by Mozilla just because Mozilla wants to know what the state of Rust is or maybe the state of Go. And it's brought to you by Google. It's not that they're advertising. It's just that they're the ones that are funding the effort. And maybe those contracts could be large enough that it actually you know, makes the other ones where you could do without uh, funding for those. Is that something you've considered or is that too far down the road or just too much work? I think I would love to do that. Um, we, we both would love to do that. But I think practically speaking, like a lot of the value I think we bring to to the thing is like the ability to get the data and, and know what to do with it and then publicize it. Uh, and if you come into a community uh, where you don't have any ties or any expertise like Rust, I don't know anything about Rust, I'm not sure I would be able to replicate that. And then on the other hand, if I leave it all up to Mozilla to do that, then I'm not sure how much value we provide. You know, we're kind of like, you know, regular contractors at this point. We just uh, make some React code. And I, I don't know, I think we would have to explore exactly where we come in, under what terms. and Well, yeah. especially since you're putting in your own personal thoughts to you, like conclusions, et cetera. Yeah. You know, a lot of this isn't simply just the data back. It's it's some insights. So there's some personal flair to it, so to speak, you know, using TGI Friday's terms. So I got one last one last monetization idea before we move on. So one thing that I think is new this time around is that there's actually an under the resources section, there is a podcasts question. And so I just want to point out that the changelog, despite not even being specifically about CSS or, or front end, is the number three most listened to podcast right behind Syntax and Shop Talk, which are great shows. So we're in good company there. Sadly, JS Party is not on this list, so that means we have some work to do to get the word out. So here's my monetization idea. We give you money, and then you put JS Party at number one, and then everybody's happy. <laughs> well, I, I was going to say yes, but now that you've talked about it publicly, I can't really accept it. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Yeah, so I'll confess that the main reason why we have all these podcasts in there is so that people talk about us. So, so far, it seems it's working, right? Yeah, it's word of mouth. That's how it works. We'll never fall for that. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Rollbar. Move fast and fix things like we do here at Changelog. Check them out at rollbar.com slash changelog. Resolve your errors in minutes and deploy with confidence. Catch your errors in your software before your users do. And if you're not using Rollbar yet or you haven't tried it yet, they want to give you $100 to donate to open source via Open Collective. And all you got to do is go to rollbar.com slash changelog, sign up, integrate Rollbar into your app. And once you do that, they'll give you $100 to donate to open source. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. So let's look at some of the results of the State of CSS 2019 survey, what has come out of it, and maybe talk about the findings, what we think about them, et cetera. The first one, Sasha, that we thought we'd bring up is the the under features, the layout. 
And the interesting thing here, first of all, you have uh, an overview of the usage of layout tools. And this is an interestingly designed chart. It's kind of like a, a cell with different, almost like a Venn diagram, but there's no overlaps. And we'll do a hard time explaining it audibly. So definitely check out the results for, for yourselves. But um, one thing that's interesting, you have an outer circle and an inner circle. And the outer circle is like how many people know about a feature. And the inner one is how many actually use it, which I thought was a very cool way of displaying. And what's what's interesting, you have grid and flexbox, and they're both really big. There's a few other features, exclusions, which I had personally never heard of, writing modes, and multi-column layout. But grid and flexbox are the two big ones. And they're both large outer circles because uh, everybody knows about them. But when it comes time to who's using what, flexbox is in huge use, and the grid is like, 50% use. Is that Was that interesting for you to find out? Yeah, so it's kind of what I expected because a grid is newer and it's maybe a little bit more complex to to learn. So it makes sense that the adoption wouldn't be as high as Flexbox. And like my personal like story at least is that I've been, I had been using floats for years and I hated every moment of it. And then when Flexbox came along, I, I kind of jumped on it right away. Because it saved me from ever having to like do float right and then clear both or whatever uh, overflow hidden uh, clear fix. Oh, I'm getting PTSD just thinking about it. Me too. But then when grid came along, I was more like, oh, one more thing now I have to learn. And then it took me a long while to actually start using it. And now that I'm using it, uh, I'm still not super comfortable, but I really love it. And it's actually probably better than Flexbox for most. Uh, use cases. So I think that chart reflects that. And I really wonder what would have happened if Grid had came out uh, first before Flexbox. I think Grid would have a much larger adoption for sure. Well, that begs the question then, since you mentioned floats, floats isn't in the list. I'm sure there's people still out there using floats. Is it just not in the list because you assume it's not being used or because it's literally not being used by anybody? No, so it's not in the list because we assume everybody knows it and has used it, uh, or it might be still using it, but we really wanted to focus on new uh, features for the survey, because otherwise, you know, we're not going to ask, are you using a font size or are you using display block or there's no real point to that. So we, we consider that flows were in the same, you know, situation where if you write CSS, I mean, that might not be true because you might have learned in the last couple of years, maybe you, you haven't used them, but otherwise it doesn't tell us much to know who is using floats, I think. Um, unless, I guess you could argue that if there's like a downward trend indicating that like people are using them less and less, that would be interesting. That's what I look at. It's like the historical value of like knowing today. I mean, obviously this is 2019, so likely not many are using floats because it's older. Flexbox, as you mentioned, has been around. So even the old hats are probably transitioning on like you were pretty happy to be done with floats. And I'm sure anybody learning today is probably learning new states of things rather than older states of things. Yeah, it just comes down to having to make choices because otherwise we would have had too many questions, which we already had too many. Um, the survey was really long, but um, yeah, we, we removed some stuff and had to make some cuts. Moving on to animations and transforms, this particularly stood out to me because of our desire as designers and potentially as users of the web or interfaces in general, the the usage of 
animations or, or even subtle or very large animations to provide good feedback or whatever it might be to enhance the user experience. To me, that seems like a, a highly valued thing as a designer and as a user. And I was pleasantly surprised to see the transitions, transforms, and animations, as Jared mentioned before, the outer circle and inner circle. They're on all three of these. They're very large. So the kind of three primary ways you can provide a complex you know, animated or motion-based interface, it seems that a lot of people are well aware and also using them very well, which is super cool. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's cool. Like, I think it's interesting that there's a small difference between like transitions and animations. So uh, it took me a while before I started using animations. For a while, I was just doing transitions. So just to recap, transition is basically when there's a state change, like hovering, usually, and then animations can be more complex. You can have keyframes, so it's not limited to just two states. And it's more complex, which uh, kind of shows up in the data. But to me, like, so what I'm looking for in the, the feature section is really data points where there's a, a big delta between the both circles. So like we were talking about grid. Um, so in other words, many people have heard of something, but few are using it, because that means uh, people are probably going to start learning it soon. So for me, that those are kind of the up-and-coming technologies or features in this case. Um, or maybe they're like hard to learn. So I feel those are the, the features where there's like a story behind it. When it's really almost overlapping, um, when almost everybody who knows about, let's say, transitions has used them, kind of means that it's like a, a good, solid feature and there's not that much uh, interesting stuff to to say about that. I think that's interesting how you say probably going to start learning it because like in any environment, in order to make progress, there needs to be a healthy feedback loop. And to me, that's why I think, you know, to our credit from, you know, part one or part two of the show, suggesting how important this survey is and obviously your your convictions and your ability to adhere to the community's desires of, you know, eliminating bias and expanding diversity, et cetera, and being transparent with the data is very informative to provide a feedback loop to the community, both to educators, to learners, to, you know, companies deciding on technologies, et cetera. This to me is so crucial, you know, like having that ability to see that grids are less used than, than Flexbox, that more people are, are aware of it and likely about to start learning it. That's an indicator. And that's that's a good feedback loop. So let's talk units and selectors real quick because I don't know. I kind of turned my nose up at first at this whole category. I'm like, what's the value here? And now the more I stare at it, the more I start to think about it. I think there is value. And one thing that's worth pointing out is this is the first state of CSS. And Sasha, you mentioned that even on features, it'll be interesting to see trends over time. Like, well, maybe people are moving away from uh, floats, for example. And it's not interesting right now, but it will be interesting in 2020, 2021. So it's worth noting that this is very much a snapshot just because it is the first one. But a lot of the really cool stuff that you can start to track is as this you know, gets put out year by year, trends in the industry. And so when I'm looking at the units and selectors, I mean, how many people use PX versus Ms versus percentage in terms of sizing things and at first i was like well of course everybody uses I mean, because you can answer more than one 
like 99.5% of people use pix, pixel or 96.9% use percent. And I was like, what, what value does this provide? But it seems like if you just want to check yourself, you know, like maybe you're, you're just learning CSS or maybe you're like wondering if you're doing it wrong and you come to something like this and you see, maybe I feel like PX is like the old school way and you're supposed to use M's or REMs or whatever. And I'm like, oh no, actually pretty much everybody's still using this. So I feel good about myself. Is that, is that the idea with this whole section about units and pseudo elements and um, even selectors? Yeah, I think, so first of all, I think uh, a cool thing is just having a list of all these selectors and or units or whatever, because all of them, like even I have never heard of them. Like I don't know what ex, but you can look it up. <laughs> maybe we maybe we can link those up to to some documentation or something. But um, yeah, the selectors. There's lots of uh, things that I I learned just doing the survey, and then also because this was the first year. Um, we weren't sure what we should ask. Like we weren't sure which sections would turn out to be interesting. So some of this stuff, maybe we won't keep it uh, for next year. Maybe we'll ask the questions differently or present the data differently. But uh, this year, it's really like just trying to collect as much as we can and see what people respond to and uh, what they want more of. Another interesting aspect was the was the frameworks. Uh, who doesn't love a framework, right? This is where the guns come out. That's right. Okay, careful now, careful now. <laughs> well, so it took us a little while, at least, uh, to grok this. Uh, what was the uh, term you used to describe this, Jerry? Was it? Uh, well, I call it a circuit board, but that was just because it looks kind of like one of those diagrams. I don't know what exactly what this chart style is called. Dacha, is there a name for this style chart? Yeah, it's a bump chart, apparently. Okay. So this bump chart, it's at the top, it's an overview, and then down beneath... So we're in the CSS framework section, by the way. So if you're listening, follow along by doing that. You know, you've got all the different frameworks mentioned, bootstrap, foundation, et cetera. What I find pretty interesting, it took me a little while to grok this, but you saw kind of left to right the the kind of three attributes, awareness, interest, and satisfaction. So one, are you aware of it? Two, are you interested in it? And three, if you've used it, are you satisfied with it? Nothing is three good indicators of pretty much any any technology, framework, whatever. What's interesting, though, is how you can sort of just look at the interest, because that's the top. You know, it goes from top down in terms of interest, literally. But Tailwind being the most interested uh, or, or having the most interest, but then you also see as a correlation not many people aware. However, at the same time, just as many who are interested are also satisfied with it. So it would tell me that Adam Watham needs to get out there and market more or find more ways to do word of mouth because, hey, people are really liking this thing. They're interested in it. They're using it, but they're not very aware of it. And I'm sure he's probably also aware that there's not many people aware of it. But yeah, but I think this is interesting to, you know, one, the folks behind each framework, but then two, the community of like, what's up and coming? You know, what should I be learning? What are people really satisfied with, you know, in terms of like top to bottom? And I think this really paints that picture very well. Yeah, so I should say that the chart may change a little bit by the time uh, listeners uh, hear this. So we'll kind of improve it a bit to to make make it clearer. But uh, yeah, I, I really like it as well. So we kind of arrived at this chart after many iterations. We were trying to kind of have this ranking of uh, ratios. So it's not like absolute values because, you know, Bootstrap obviously is going to have more people uh, satisfied than uh 
Tailwind, just because more people have used it. The community is much, much larger. But then if you look at the ratio of satisfied versus non-satisfied, then you can actually compare them and then Tailwind takes the lead. And, and also, even though these charts are typically used more to, to show like a, a chronological data, so uh, years, uh, months, or whatever, here it's kind of a, a snapshot in time, but at the same time, like it kind of corresponds to three stages of adoption. So first you become aware of a technology, then you are interested in learning it, then you actually use it and you can be satisfied or not. So it's not chronological data in the sense that it's uh, all corresponding to a single point in time, but there is this aspect of an evolution for uh, a single technology. Yeah, it's a, a very interesting chart because it starts off super confusing and we were even had to talk about it. We're like, what is this even trying to say to us? And then once you figure out, okay, this is how it's working, then when you look at it, it almost seems intuitive afterwards. You know, you're like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. So I can look down here and see that tachyons is uh, near the bottom of awareness, but the interest is kind of in the middle and then the satisfaction is top five. So it's very highly satisfying to those people who are using it. There's, It's got a decent amount of interest. Um, people want to learn about it. But of those people, of the whole, that doesn't have much of an awareness. So like other people who are aware of it, they do want to try it out. Yeah, it's a very interesting chart. Yeah, we always try to include a, a few like puzzle charts in a way where it's not obvious right away how to read them or what they're saying, but then you can kind of decode them and then it becomes very easy to read. So I think maybe the the overall technologies chart is a little bit like that as well. And we have the the scatter plot, the quadrants chart. So there's a few, or it's not just, you know, not just bars or whatever. It's kind of a little bit of upfront work, but then it's rewarding because you, you get it. You definitely need an explainer for how to read the chart. Unless you're, you know, a chart master. And in such case, you know, you know exactly how it works. For me, it took me about five minutes, so I'm not a chart master, <laughs> <laughs> admittedly. And Adam had to describe it to me, so I'm even lower on the on the rung there. Before we move on, I just want to point out my my favorite uh, framework, Semantic UI, is struggling a little bit. So uh, fourth and fourth highest in awareness, so pretty highly aware, and very much interest, second interest. But then the satisfaction is down; it's down more towards the middle of the pack. And I would say that that's probably this point, unfortunately, it's deserved because Semantic UI has been falling behind in terms of maintenance. It's just the the pure weight of the number of issues and people using it uh, have really bogged it down. And um, we've had Jack on the show a couple of times trying to talk about that. I've even reached out to him and say, like, how, what can we do about Semantic UI and helping you out? And it just seems like uh, it's one of these things that's a victim of its own success, perhaps. So sometimes that's the way things go. Yeah, I think you can look at Bootstrap as well, which is number one in awareness, but last in interest, which yeah. kind of makes sense, but then also pretty low in satisfaction. Right. So, um, yeah, sometimes just being the the number one in terms of sheer size doesn't guarantee like a good, uh, it good ratios in the other yeah, it areas. Yeah, can harm your satisfaction even because of so yeah. much. Exactly. And what's interesting, too, is if you rewind, uh, probably, I'm guessing, just seven years-ish, maybe five to eight years, somewhere in that range, Bootstrap and Foundation were sort of the rage at the time because they were, well, not to designers who would rather design their own thing, but for a lot of people, it's like, wow, I can launch them faster. And it's funny that, that you know, these two correlate very well in terms of their satisfaction. Like, 
Bootstrap is just one notch above foundation and, you know, roughly the same in terms of interest. Like, so lots of people super aware of both Bootstrap and foundation, which sort of parallel one another in terms of what they aim to achieve as a framework. But, you know, the interest and satisfaction, you know, the, the, to me, this is Teely is in a win. It's, it's good that you can see that, that these two, not so much they're in the place they are, but you can see from anybody's point of view, what is something worth investing your time into? And potentially what people have found interest in or interest in and satisfaction in, but isn't that aware of. So let's move on to methodologies, these uh, ways of writing your, your CSS or architecting it. Uh, BEM, SMACS, OOCSS, Atomic CSS, etc. Seems like for the most part, BEM is dominant, uh, highest awareness, pretty high interest, highest satisfaction. 52% of respondents uh, have used it before uh, versus the next following up, which is Atomic CSS, which is at 20% have used that architecture. Did this surprise you or was this uh, as a as a CSS guru, Sasha, are you uh, any at all surprised by these results or is it pretty much what you would expect? Um, I feel I, I'm going to get in trouble if I call myself a CSS guru. Oh, I called I called um, you that. You didn't call yourself that. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it kind of matches what I expected. Like BAM, I feel is it, it kind of benefits from being really clear and really like, the concept at least is really simple. The other methodologies, I feel it's kind of a bit you know muddier what exactly they involve. Uh, I, I'm curious about uh, it CSS or IT CSS. I hadn't really heard of it, but looking looking it up, it kind of looks interesting and it has a a good satisfaction rating as well. But I think methodologies, you know, we wanted to have them because it's something that's kind of unique to CSS. Uh, you know, JavaScript doesn't, you know, you can have functional programming or object oriented, but it's not codified like CSS. Uh, so I think it's interesting that CSS does have these. But at the same time, I don't think most developers are that like you know rigid about observing a methodology. Like even myself, like I use BAM, but in a very like flexible way. Where as soon as it's too much work, I just stop using it and just write random classes. So um, I suspect a lot of people do the same. Yeah, it's interesting to see that Smax was sort of the leader of this sort of methodologies instead of frameworking. You know how to write or rules for writing CSS being sort of flatlined in terms of awareness, interest, and satisfaction, and BIM being the highest in awareness and satisfaction, but just one dip down in terms of interest. But, you know, hey, that's how it works out. Yeah, I think, you know, honestly, I think CSS, it had a lot of holes, like a lot of uh, things that were missing, and that's why the methodology is developed uh, as a way to, to kind of fill, fill out the, the language. Uh, but then the more stuff we have, CSS Grid, Flexbox, the less we need those methodologies. Uh, and, and in some cases, it doesn't make a difference. Like having good classes is always a good idea. But I think the more we can uh, do in the language itself, it's also with uh, preprocessors like uh, SAS um, and stuff like both CSS. So I do think the more you leverage these tools, the saner your code looks and the less you need the methodologies. And it can CSS can become more like a, another programming language like JavaScript where you can uh, have your own style, but everything kind of makes sense because the language is powerful enough. Well, let's open up the, the can of worms then. Probably the most highly debated, not really sure how to describe it, but the CSS in JavaScript 
argument has has been fought and won and lost and refought again and there's a lot of opinions here what what are we learning from what you've gathered in the survey so style components in number one in terms of awareness um second interest third satisfaction overall you know pretty high uh the one that's really interesting to me is uh, emotion uh low awareness pretty high interest and number one in terms of satisfaction so anytime you know, the number one satisfaction ratio has low awareness. It kind of indicates like an up-and-coming technology uh, where few people know about it, but the ones who use it are very happy with them and might become like evangelists for that technology. So that that's the, the kind of thing I, I like to keep my eye on. And I, I've used, of all these, I've only used uh, style components. And actually for state of CSS, we just use uh, SAS. So we don't use CSS and JS at all. Not for any particular reason, more like we haven't had time to kind of make the switch. Personally, I, I like the concept. I think the most valuable thing, I think I say that in the in the introduction to that, that section, is that um, the, the more new ideas we have and the more new people we have writing CSS or CSS and JS, the better overall. Because, you know, I, I'm not an expert, but I'm sure if it hasn't happened already, some ideas from CSS and JS will make their way into plain CSS, uh, as has happened with SAS and stuff like variables or, or maybe nesting at some point. And you don't have to use those like if you don't want to, but I think having a more powerful language, especially for CSS, which started off as pretty limited, uh, I think it's probably a good thing on the whole. Whether you like CSS and JS or not, whether you use it or not, I think overall, it's probably a good thing for CSS itself. Yeah. That's how I saw preprocessors, postprocessors. You know, you know when Compass and SAS had come along, it was the first time I'd seen, you know, the idea of a programming language like Ruby. In, in the case now, it's since moved on from Ruby, I believe, to other languages to do the stuff, the preprocessing stuff. Yeah, exactly. You know, you got uh, the these higher order. You know, not limited to simply using CSS itself to produce a CSS file at the time, this is many years ago, had blown my mind. And I was like, this is anarchy. This is crazy. This cannot happen. But then I was like, no, this is amazing. As you know, I looked into it further and I see the same thing happening here with CSS and, and JS is that what you're going to see is the language get pushed forward. And in a, in a lot of ways, CSS itself is the language it is today and has some of the features it has because of the pre and post processors. And I would assume that similar things would happen by pushing it uh, in the way that CSS in JavaScript will push it. Yeah, and maybe, you know, CSS and JS might be uh, a trend for a couple of years and then CSS will catch up and start using CSS and JS less and less. And I think that might happen with SAS actually because uh, we think like, you know, Grid, which, which uh, lets you not use breakpoints, which means you don't need mix-ins as much with variables with, you know, calc, all these things are kind of eating up like the, the things that SAS were, was so good at. So it's really interesting to me to see how, yeah, CSS is kind of making all these other tools obsolete by, by just evolving in the, the right direction. So let's just hit a couple of real quick ones in the other tools and environments, and then I want to move on to opinions. But uh, text editors, VS Code, uh, 73.8% of respondents using VS Code. Sublime, 35%. Sorry to the uh, Vim Party chat room in our Slack, only 18%. 
of people responding to this particular survey are using Vim for development. Um, browsers, we have Chrome dominant, 92.2% of people are using that browser, uh, specifically during initial development, and then Firefox with 53% not seeing brave anywhere on the list i must have not taken the the survey because i'm a brave user even during uh, development environments um chrome during oh is this the same one browsers which browsers do develop yeah so that that's a mistake on the version you're seeing ah, this is okay. actually uh which browsers do you test in so right um not so much the one you're most at home in but the one you make sure everything works in. gotcha so yeah, much more people doing other browsers. That's a good thing, right? So we have people testing in browsers that they're not using on the daily. Um, so much more representative. Safari Edge, Safari iOS, IE, Chrome, Android, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which form factors do developers test on? Uh, pretty much everybody tests on desktop. 99.7%. Uh, That's uh, only a few hundred people are not even using a desktop at all to test, which... What's, what's wrong with you folks? Got to test it on desktop. 91.6%. Um, so it drops off a little bit for smartphones, but still pretty good penetration in terms of testing on phones, tablets, 70%, and so on. You can read those those results for yourselves. So let's get to a, this opinion section. I thought this was cool. So uh, we'll close with this one here, I guess, and maybe have you uh, state some of your conclusions, Sasha, as we tail off the call. But this is a section which is basically like, will you answer, do you agree with this? Do you strongly agree? You know, kind of a sliding scale. Do you strongly disagree? And it has a bunch of statements about CSS. And so I thought this was a very cool uh, section of the survey. The learning curve for CSS. So the statement is CSS is easy to learn. And uh, pretty high agreement. So 35% agree and then 20, another 25% rounding strongly agree pretty much nobody or by nobody i mean 340 people strongly disagree with that statement so css still even though it's evolved and added a bunch of stuff and people get caught up with how to select your precedents and all that stuff there are things but overall it seems like people are thinking it's easy to learn uh, speaking of evolvement css is evolving too slowly this is one that i thought i would see more agreement on but most people are pretty much neutral on this. Did this surprise you, Sasha, or does this uh, reflect what you think about the evolving pace of CSS? Yeah, I also thought it, the agreement would be higher. Maybe that's because I've been using CSS for a long time and I'm still kind of used to the this glacial pace of change. Well, maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, for a while we didn't have as uh, obvious um, as, like, the improvements weren't as visible maybe that's it i know a lot of work was going on behind the scenes on browsers and stuff but i think especially compared to the last couple of years with flexbox grid uh the pace has really picked up so i think if if you've you know started using css in those years you probably feel like it's evolving just fine if you're more used to you know 10 years ago or whatever uh, maybe you agree with that statement more the question that I also enjoyed is CSS is a programming language. This is one that the, the folks like to argue about on Reddit and, and whatnot. But most people uh, strongly disagree, 31%, and then another 18% disagree, 23% um, neutral. So most people are either neutral on this or disagree or strongly disagree that CSS is a programming language. What's, what's your take on that one? I don't know. I think it probably all depends on your definition of programming language. Yeah. But 
I would say yes, because just because I don't know what else it is. Yeah. <laughs> what else? Is well, it's basic definition. It is, you know, you are programming a machine to do something and it is a language. So at its basic core, it is a programming language. Are you programming the machine though? Um, well, you're programming, well, I suppose. I mean, it depends. Yeah, there's some really interesting things you could do with CSS, but... Um, you're declaring... Well, that's where, yeah, that's where the debate is, right? Right. And that there, there lies the, the debate. So I would agree with that, that there's a debate. <laughs> <laughs> it's obvious. So we have 100% agreement that there's a debate about whether or not it's a programming language. Well, that brings me to my point here is that the statement is CSS is a programming language, Right. And I always find it kind of hard because it's like, is it agreeing or not agreeing when you say strongly disagree? Because it's like... Well, you disagree with the statement. Right? right, exactly. But it's hard to grok it. You have to sort of like process it one, or at least me. I have to process it a couple of times to be like, think about agreeing it. or disagreeing that it is or it isn't? And then I have to like, okay, good, good. So most of the people disagree that it is a programming language. That's the point we're making here. 30.95% right. if the number strong. That's strong right. disagreement. So yeah, add in the disagree... And you got uh, 58, almost 60%, right? 30 plus 18, yeah, that's 47. Yeah, roughly 50% either agree or strongly disagree or disagree. Well, whether or not it's a programming language, that's just a kind of a fun meta debate. But uh, let's finish on this one. Enjoyment. I enjoy writing CSS. Now we're not going to have much controversy here because these are people who like CSS because they're taking the CSS survey to a certain degree. And of... Uh, 48.67% strongly agree, 27% agree, 14% neutral, 6% roughly disagree, and then only 442 respondents strongly disagree that they enjoy writing CSS. So despite all of its, what do you call that, glacial uh, involvement and uh, glacial change and the debates about it being a programming language and the, the tooling and the where to put it, do I put it in its own file, do I put it in my, in my JavaScript, for the most part, people do enjoy writing it, so that's a good thing. Well, okay, let me just say a disclaimer that I think the pace of change is much faster now, and <laughs> also that I think, uh, you know, because a lot of people from the, like the, the CSS uh, uh, writing group, like the CSS development group helped us. Plus you're a CSS guru now, so your, your opinion really matters now. Yes, <laughs> uh, guru, I have uh, official business cards. You can put that on your LinkedIn. But uh, yeah, so one thing I learned actually by working with the, the working group people, some of them, is that CSS like does so much more than what we typically think. Let's say that you need to display your website on a smartwatch, and that smartwatch has a, a round face. So there's people who are tasked to um, figure out how CSS works on circular screens or fridges. Uh, or really all kinds of devices, all kinds of environments. And uh, yeah, it's a really tough job, especially like when you see how well CSS works at the end of the day, uh, across browser, across devices, there's really nothing else like it. Uh, there's no other way of styling, visually styling your content like anywhere. Like It's like kind of unique. And the fact that at the same time, it's still kind of easy to learn and enjoyable to write. Uh, I think it really says a lot about uh, the quality of the work of the CSS people. So, um, that, I mean, I, I'm, I've always had my, you know, annoyances about CSS, but at the end of the day, I think it's important to really value uh, the work that's gone into it. 
Yeah, I think that there's times when we've brought CSS up on this show in particular with you know, designers coming on the show sharing, you know, I'm thinking in particular the, the most recent one, which was like design thoughts for developers base. I can't recall the title. Jeremy, you can help me out with that one. But there's always this, if you bring up CSS, there's always sort of like this cringe, but there is still some enjoyment in writing it. It's just very hard. It's, it's a hard language in my opinion, to uh, to really master. It takes a lot to really master it. And even when you think you've mastered it, you have just begun to scratch the surface of mastery. And uh, unless you're Eric Meyer or something like that, then then of course, or whoever wrote the book CSS Mastery, right? That's, that was, <laughs> they're the masters. That's how you master it. You read that's the right. Book. That's right. I want to mention too, we would have covered awards here in this call because that's something we love to give praise to either for the frameworks out there or those leading the way. Uh, however, those details are not finalized just yet, so we couldn't quite cover those. But uh, you know, one thing you do say, if this is accurate in the current state of the state of CSS website, is if we had to pick a theme for this year, it would be new beginnings. And so I want to charge everyone out there listening that if you care about the feedback loop to this community, CSS or JavaScript, then I would encourage you to get to know Sasha better or subscribe to the email list, whatever it takes to to put your perspective into this story because without your perspective, we don't really have a quality feedback loop. So uh, it's important to have everybody's voice. Uh, and more importantly, it's important to have, um, you know, a, a wide spectrum of opinions on what's being used out there. It's going to inform the larger users of CSS. It's going to inform the larger perspective and future of CSS and future technologies to enjoy even more so this uh, sometimes love hated language, at least from my opinion. So Sasha, any closing thoughts from you? I mean, since you have a conclusion here and you've done so much work behind this, you and Raphael uh, have put so much effort into this and we appreciate that. Is there anything you want to close with or share with the audience before we say goodbye? Uh, well, I just want to thank you guys for uh, having me on and um yeah, basically, I hope people will find this valuable and will enjoy it. It was a lot of fun to to build, and you know, we always have fun with the design, and and it's always interesting for us to look at the data. And you know, I really hope that this can become like a just like the state of JS, like a yearly thing, and we can see how the trends evolve over time. And uh, what I would really like to do even more is just keep expanding this to different. Uh, domains so JavaScript, CSS, maybe who knows React, GraphQL. Uh, there, there's a lot we can do before we kind of run out of things, even that we use ourselves, like Node, Gatsby. Um, there's so many things, and so yeah, who knows? Maybe next year we'll have even more <laughs> surveys to talk about. Uh, I, I don't know at which point uh, I'm, I'll start losing my sanity. I don't know how many surveys I can run at the same time, but. Uh, I definitely want to try. Well, worst case scenario, you have more clothes. If there's a t-shirt for yeah. resurvey in every year, then, hey, that's an easy way to outfit your your closet. Oh, yeah. So I need a, a, at least seven surveys, so I have one t-shirt for that's right. every day of the week. You're a minimalist. That's good. I want to remind folks, uh, stateofcss.com and stateofjs.com are the two places you can go to sort of catch up on past results and uh, and just play your part. And right now, the survey is over for State of CSS. <laughs> So you don't have to come back next year if there's an extra year, of course. 
but uh, those are two places you can go. And from there, there's lots of links out to Twitter, out to Facebook, out to the email list. Sasha, thank you so much for joining us today. It was awesome to get a behind-the-scenes look at the survey and all the things you're up to. The details behind things like this are really interesting to us. So thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Changelog. Hey, guess what? We have discussions on every single episode now. So head to changelog.com to discuss this episode. And if you want to help us grow this show, reach more listeners and influence more developers, do us a favor and give us a rating or review in iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you use Overcast, give us a star. If you tweet, tweet a link. If you make lists of your favorite podcasts, include us in it. And of course, thank you to our sponsors, Linode, GoCD, and Rollbar. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner, Rollbar, our monitoring service, and Linode, our cloud server of choice. This episode is hosted by myself, Adam Stukoviak, and Jared Santo, and our music is done by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you want to hear more episodes like this, subscribe to our master feed at changelog.com master, or go into your podcast app and search for Changelog Master. You'll find it. Thank you for tuning in this week. We'll see you again soon.